Hello and welcome to More Than a Number, the podcast brought to you by ICAEW, looking behind the numbers to discover how they're really impacting our lives. I'm financial journalist Louise Cooper, and today in this episode, we're questioning the inevitability of inequality in the workplace. 11.9%, the average gender pay gap in British businesses employing more than 250 people. Despite the increased transparency and calls to action, there has been almost no improvement from the year before, when it became mandatory to disclose the figure. But the societal pressure for a more diverse and fairer workforce originated in the years before, according to financier and campaigner Dame Helena Morrissey. If everybody moves in the same direction, if the business case point is made so powerfully that those who've set up the system see the need, the real need for profits of the business to change, then we have an open door. Now, the 30% club was set up out of at a moment of upheaval post the financial crisis when suddenly that groupthink point was so obvious. Um, no one could say, oh, it's fine. We don't need a change here. So we do need to have those moments of upheaval sometimes, I think, to grasp. And I am saying, you know, I think it's a moment to seize, to try to impress some people as well. There's not a zero-sum game. This is about making businesses better, about having greater prosperity. I have every sympathy with those women who said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to set up my own firm and set the culture. And that's a real problem for those companies that they've left. A reminder that the 30% Club campaigns for increased gender diversity at board level. Joining me is Dr Jane Burney, Technical Manager, Business Law Department at the ICAEW. Welcome, Jane. Hello. What does a firm have to publish legally? They have to publish a series of six metrics or numbers to show the difference between the average hourly pay average bonus pay for men and women. So the median, the mean? Yes, the hourly pay and the median and the mean bonus pay. And then they have to um, show the split between the women and men at the top level and at the bottom level to go and give some analysis. But they only have to produce the numbers. They don't have to produce any explanation. Any context? Nope. The focus is on median pay gap. Why? Because that's meant to show a truer average. If you just do the mean, that can be distorted by higher and lower levels. So the median is? It's when you find the person in the middle who has their so, pay. So you line them all up, lowest pay to highest pay, and it's the person in the middle. Yes. OK. Right. Joining me also, Sam Smethers from the Fawcett Society, campaigning for gender equality and women's rights. So we have these numbers. Is the median a good average? What do we do? We've got these numbers. Are they good numbers? What do we look at? Well, it's legitimate average, just like other measures of average. But we always look at the mean as well. And the government requires companies to report their mean averages because it's important when you look at pay to consider who's at the top earning the most and who's at the bottom earning the least. So it's a useful average to look at as well. And the company with the worst pay gap, I think, is where women are paid just 21p for every pound that men get paid. The company says it's not representative of the company. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think, you know, you have to look at what goes into causing that pay gap figure. And it's all about the analysis at the end of the day. So, so it's not about the number? Well, the number is is an indicator, but it, it's an average figure and it hides a lot of uh, the reality. And it, really, the, the value in this whole thing is the process. Uh, are you really getting to understand your organisation? Do you understand what's causing that pay gap? So yes. not just legally reporting a number, but the process of working the yeah, number out. That's why we've supported the whole thing. There's also a problem because um, a very low pay gap does not necessarily 
a good thing because it could just mean a lot of people are paid at a very, very low level. So that can be a distortion. That that comes out in the care and retail industries particularly. Okay. Well, also with us is Liz Benison, Managing Director at Bus and Train Operator Arriva. And at a prior firm, you had global responsibility for gender diversity. Welcome, Liz. Hello there. I've looked at the Arriva gender pay gap and it's reported across various business entities. It's got mean, it's got median, it's got group level. There's all these numbers. How as a business do you go about working out what they're telling you? Yeah, I think it's as Sam said, really, you know, we've done analysis based on that number is 7% overall. However, we've taken two... 20, 27% at board level, if I'm correct. It, it is indeed. So we've taken two big things from that. One is we need to be more attractive to women as drivers and engineers. That's a business issue for us. And secondly, we need a more diverse senior leadership team. And we've put actions in place around those those two things. And we're using the gender pay gap as the as the lagging indicator of are we successful on those. Jane, you talk about gaps within the gaps. What do you mean by that? At one point, the numbers are split into sort of four quartiles. So the people at the top and and then going down to the people at the lowest level. But you actually need to look within those levels to see what's going on, who's being paid what and why they're being paid that. Why? Why do I need to do that? Because otherwise you can't understand the numbers and you can't do anything about it. Sam, there are so many different numbers we could look at here. Um, One in four FTSE 350 companies only have one woman on their board. Over 90% of FTSE 100 companies have male CEOs. And the rather hilarious statistic that more CEOs are called Dave or Steve than are women, although actually that's not that funny. You know, what numbers do you like looking at? Well, I think what they show is really the power structure in the workplace. And we're still living with a male-dominated, male-designed power structure in the workplace. And women are constantly struggling to break through that. And there are a number of barriers which get in their way and prevent their progress, which is what we're talking about today. So I think there are, I don't have a favourite number. I just have a, a very simple analysis, but I think it holds true, which is ultimately this is a system and a world designed by men for men, and we still haven't fundamentally changed that. Jane, gender pay gap reporting can be gamed. How? Well, the first thing is that it's based on workers, which is a legal definition of workers. And so that didn't include partners in, say, the big four accountancy firms. So when they first produced their numbers, they actually looked quite good until they realised they weren't including partners, at which point they looked terrible. They still don't have to um, give those numbers. They are now doing it on a voluntary basis. And so any firm that maybe pays its most of its staff in shares, for example, compensation, yeah. if, you, if you get a very small salary but lots of shares then the gender pay gap is, I would argue, almost meaningless. Yes, and also if you take salary sacrifices, that can distort the numbers as well. Thanks to the Ford ladies of Dagenham, the Equal Pay Act was made law in 1970. Um, and yet, Sam, there are many that allege all, that women are not paid for the same work. Or, so we haven't even, we're not even carrying the 1970 law. Is that the case, do you think? Absolutely, it's the case. We run an equal pay advice service for women earning £30,000 a year or less. We're having cases coming through that service now, and they're, almost all of them are equal work cases. So this is where women are finding that they're earning less than men in their own organisations. The challenge is it's very hard for women to know because we don't have transparent pay structures and we don't talk about pay at work. And in fact, 100 of the most successful businesswomen in the UK have launched the hashtag MeTooYou campaign against illegal pay discrimination because there have been many high profile cases where women are paid less for doing essentially the same job. Liz. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I completely support the initiative that's just been launched. Um, I've been in that situation where I've discovered that I was earning two thirds what one of my peers was earning. And it's incredibly demoralising to find that out. But as, as Sam said, it's, it's difficult. This is not something that's talked about. Um, to me, this is a bit where boards and remuneration committees should be doing a lot more. They should be challenging as well and, and, and diving into those examples. Is that happening at Arriva? It's starting to. Yeah, it's starting to. We're starting to have those sorts of conversations based on things like the information we're getting through Gender Pay Gap. Jane? I was going to say, it is very difficult for people generally to find out what their peers are being paid. I've got no idea what mine are, and I didn't know when I was in practice. But one thing we have found is... But, but you do legally have the right for your employer to give you a pay comparator? Yes. Not exactly. Not exactly. Go no. on, go on, Sam. Well, this is one of the problems with the legislation as it currently stands. So, yes, yeah, she's got the right to equal pay, but it, actually it's very, very difficult for her to get that information from her employer. So if she wants disclosure, she's actually got to go to tribunal to get that disclosure. We're finding this with cases now that we're dealing with on our service. Women ask the question, but the employer doesn't give them the information. And the only way to extract it is, is through an actual legal challenge. And I would say, speaking from the accounting profession, my own experience is I may have been an audit manager and we're all audit managers, so the basics might have been the same, but then you're graded and that would affect your pay and your bonuses and that's where women start to lose out as well. So the data shows that women lose out when it comes to bonuses? Yes. Okay. Big time. Big, Big time. time. <laughs> Big time. Well, hold that thought, ladies, because there are many reasons given for the gender pay gap. And I put some of them to Dame Helena Morrissey. So women self-select out. And I think that is part of the problem. But obviously, they self-select because they're not happy and enjoying their lives and, we, you know, and struggling often culturally. I do want to be very clear that this is not about women not wanting to work hard. I know some women who have been very discouraged, they work extremely hard, and sometimes extremely long hours, but they've still felt that the culture, uh, whether it's overt you know, harassment or whether it's much subtler, is very macho and they have to sort of enter into discussions about you know, sporting uh, fixtures or they just feel excluded in, in minor ways. It might seem a little bit uh, superficial, but I think it does wear people down if they feel every day they've just got to sort of pretend someone they're not. to, you know, go along with things. And, um, yeah, I think I understand that. But I don't think they will select out unless they are not enjoying their work. The motherhood penalty. If you choose to have children, then that's your problem. So one of the things that I think is extremely important at this juncture is to concentrate on what this all means for men. And I spearheaded a survey last year called Equal Lies, which was interviewing men who have careers and want to have caring responsibilities as well. And nine out of 10 of the fathers said that they thought they should play an equal role in their children's upbringing as their wives or female partners. But they felt culturally, again, that employers weren't sympathetic to that. And so I think it's very important. If we're going to create more career opportunities for women, we need men to have more choices in life too. And that is a societal barrier often that they feel less of a man if they are you know, playing a bigger part at home. But in all honesty, they have a point. They should have equal opportunities in, at home as well. And I and I do think we need to redress the balance. It's completely understandable that our gender equality efforts are focused on, on women. But there are two sides. Need to be focused on men as well. The other thing, the reason why women get paid less, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm saying this, I'm, this is some of the reasons listed, is women are poor negotiators. They aren't very good at negotiating a pay-wise. So I do have some tactics for helping women Ooh. to ask for a pay yeah, rise. A lot of people will be interested <laughs> in these tactics. Um, one of them is to try to take the emotion out of it, oh. be very facts-based, 
it's absolutely fine to be emotional in lots of context, but this is one where you go in completely armed with the facts and uh, demonstrate your value through what you've achieved and what perhaps male colleagues doing the same job are being paid and to be very calm about it and to really take the sting out of any accusation that this is, you know, something that is tied to emotions. But I think in the meantime, we should get ourselves into a point where businesses are at the end of the year, company executives are saying, who's contributed? Those ones are the ones that should get the pay rise. Sam, your reaction? Well, I think she's absolutely right to say, you know, we're actually very bad at managing performance in this country and measuring outcomes and outputs uh, effectively. And I think it's right to say that we need to focus on that and, and overcome the biases by having more transparent systems and processes. Liz, you talk about skiing in a whiteout. <laughs> what do you mean by that, yeah, Liz? So it's just the self-selection point. So I, I don't think women self-select out because of a lack of ambition. I think it is because they're in a, in a world that's designed by a certain type of man for a certain type of man. And, I, and my analogy is skiing I'm a good skier I love skiing if I had to ski in a whiteout every single day I'd probably give up um, and that's you might not be that good either <laughs> well I, I am a good skier I know I'm a good skier but I would question my performance if every day I skied in a whiteout and that's what happens in the working environment it, sometimes it feels like skiing in a work in a whiteout Liz I like that analogy <laughs> and I don't even ski um, <laughs> Jane um, talking about the self-selecting out in audit firms you often find the women are doing the training aspects of the job because we're better mm. at training we're doing the counselling because we're supposedely better at counselling so you find yourself being pushed into Are they they the lower paid bits of the profession? Not necessarily. (laughs) Not necessarily, but you do... Training probably is. Not in front of clients' FaceTime. Yeah, well, exactly. That's when you then get judged on your your hours and that kind of thing. And that will feed into your bonuses, which we were talking about earlier. Where women are even more discriminated against. And I do find it quite interesting. These reasons are given... You know, you could argue they're all the woman's fault. You okay. choose to have a baby. You're, you know, you're not a good negotiator, and you self-select out. So it's all women's fault. No. Can I, can I just can I come back on the the, the is it a women's issue or children a women's issue? So one of my previous bosses on a webcast to an audience predominantly of women, but some guys actually used the phrase "I outsource my children to the wife," and actually the reaction from the women was bad. No, no the, one else thinks that's 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 sort of like no, but, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Well, it, I, I don't have a shocked reaction because I, I suppose I was kind of used to hearing this kind of stuff. <laughs> what was really interesting, though, was the biggest shock reaction was from the younger generation of men who said, I don't want that. I don't want to outsource my children. And that's what gives me hope is there's a generation of men coming through now who don't want that deal either. And that's where I think there's hope. And that's where we have to design policy differently because yeah. at mm. the moment our leave system presumes it's her job to care for children, yeah. really. We hardly yeah. give him any dedicated leave at a, a level yeah. he can afford to take. Yeah. That's one of the big, big changes we need because unless we get equality at home, we won't get equality at work. It's one of those fundamentals. So the fact that women can take up to a year's um, maternity leave and paternity leave is what, a couple of weeks? Two weeks. Statutory paternity pay is very low. Most men don't take it. And even with shared parental leave, it's still her leave that she chooses to give to him. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't get an enhanced rate, it doesn't make financial sense for the household for him to take the time off. And so we just perpetuate the same uh, gender stereotype in gender roles. You both mentioned earlier the bonuses. Why is it that women then are, are... get significantly less bonuses, Sam? Well, partly if if you've already got unequal pay or or inequality in pay and part of your bonus is calculated based on your pay, then that 
feeds the bonus. But then obviously, if you've got those biases in the conversation, if you've got those assumptions driving what is rewarded in the workplace and what is not, and male performance and male behaviours get rewarded, then you often see women uh, done down as a result of that. I also thought what Helena said about like this idea of a pay audit going through the entire organisation yeah. and, and really working out where there are differences is that something that you've experienced from a practical point of view, Liz, or is it just too big and too massive to even yeah, contemplate? I, I think, unfortunately, you know, we've been in a decade now of low inflation. So actually addressing this. Yeah. So so in, in one life, I had separate pot, a separate pot of money to try and address um, gender pay issues. Um, but the pots are so small at the moment because we've had low inflation for a long time. We've had low pay rises for a long time. So it's quite difficult to structurally address it. I think Iceland's the place that have actually done it, haven't they? They've actually moved it. They've, they've really achieved true pay equality across the entire population. But we do, you know, absolutely at Arriva, we do look at that. We look at is there any bias around the, the performance grading and things like that to try and rule those sorts of things out. But it is difficult. It takes a lot of time and ultimately costs a lot of money. Pay audits? Well, you have to do a pay audit in order to do your gender pay gap reporting. I mean, how else are you going to come up with your average numbers if you haven't got the pay data in the first place? The issue we have is that the individual woman doesn't have access to that data, so she can't know about pay discrimination in her organisation to challenge it. Uh, and I think the thing about bonuses is if you look at the, the numbers that have been reported, sometimes those bonus gaps are double or even more than double the pay gap figure. And even if you take out part-time versus full-time workers, which are kind of aggregated up in bonuses at the moment in the reporting, you will still find, we're certain, you will find discrimination going on in that bonus pay what, structure. What can businesses do about gender pay gap? Anyone got any ideas, apart from a pay audit? Well, there are a number of things that businesses can do. One is definitely to try and address some of the recruitment practices and look at the appraisal and performance appraising practices in the organisation because that is where certainly unconscious bias can come in and I, I would argue sometimes conscious bias. I think the other thing they can do is really look at the way they structure work and particularly at senior levels so how open is it to those who work to work part-time or job share just because it's a senior role doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a long hours job and it's that kind of structure of work that often excludes women and then it's also about the behaviours and the culture. Have you got a macho culture? You know, Are you tolerating the kinds of practices you know, whether it be sexual harassment or just going down the pub every night and that's where the decisions are made. But that can be quite obvious. It's the very subtle discrimination, isn't it? That, you know, you blame the woman. If something goes wrong, there's sort of like, oh, we'll just blame the woman rather than... It's that very, you know, little decisions every day seen through a, a societal bias that frankly dates back to people's childhoods. Yeah, so we're, so at Arriva we're doing two things. We're, we're, we're working on, you know, ultimately women do have this imposter syndrome, this, this some say lack of confidence. I'd like to say maybe men are overconfident, reframe <laughs> that. Um, but, but we're working on that. We're working on developing our female leaders to be, to have a voice, to stand up for themselves, etc. And what practical way have you done that? Uh, all sorts of ways. So we've got a network, we have guest speakers in, we're doing development, we're encouraging women to take up more, uh, more of the, uh, the proportion of opportunities of development programmes that we offer, where traditionally they, they took a lower proportion of those opportunities up and then on the flip side we're working with the leaders not just the male leaders all of the leaders to really understand bias and, and spot bias and, and and act upon it and and trying to force those light bulb moments in some of our leaders where they say oh my god I do that that's wrong okay well you brought up unconscious bias you brought up conscious bias Sam let's listen to an example because Helena Morrissey has written a book entitled a good time to be a girl don't lean in change the system and in it she describes one example of unconscious bias when the i think it was the boston philharmonic orchestra realized that they were struggling to have female 
violinists and other talented musicians, instead of doing auditions in the full purview of, of those who were assessing them, they did them behind a screen. And there was a dramatic increase, a 50% increase in the number of women who were selected. And that's such a powerful example because, of course, a musician should only be judged by the sound they make. But it shows that we have these biases that get in the way of, you know, even a, someone who's trained to pick the best musicians is influenced by what they look like. Your thoughts, Sam? Well, that's a very powerful example. Um, and she's absolutely right. It's a very uh, powerful uh, instinct that we all have, actually, unconscious bias. W- women as well as absolutely. men. Absolutely. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's the instinct that makes me cross the road when I see a man coming towards me at night, you know, just in case, because I, I worry about being attacked on the street at night, as many, many women do. That's my unconscious bias saving me potentially from an encounter. So there are sometimes times when it's a good thing, but in the workplace and in recruitment, it can lead us to just perpetuate models of ourselves. And that's the thing we have to challenge. And You said when you are trying to encourage more women into leadership positions, Liz, you've actually changed the the sort of job spec. Yeah. So, so, so this what, was, did, what did you do? Yeah. So we did analysis. It was a training program for young uh, young managers who want with high potential, and we were finding that we were only getting 10, 15, 20 percent women applying for it. And what we did was look at the application form and reword it. So we were asking questions like, are you 100% mobile? Well, no idiot would say they're 100% mobile. <laughs> so suddenly women... Will you go to, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Timbuktu to, if tomorrow. we ask you to? Yeah, yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so we reworded questions like that and, and suddenly found that actually we were getting lots more women coming through and, and, and very rapidly got to 50-50 on those, on those development courses just by quite subtle changes of the wording. Women won't self-brag, you know, so, so again, just change change the wording so that's not what you're asking that's for. That's really interesting that just such a simple change has made such a big difference. Um, I'm kind of interested in the benefits to be had from a more diverse workforce. We heard from Helen at the beginning, groupthink contributed significantly to the financial crisis. What does some of the research tell us about this, Sam? Well, it's, it's well evidenced that where you've got diverse decision making, diverse teams, you get better outcomes, um, you know, better understanding both of your client base or customer base, of the role you play in society. Because, you, you know, we're as a charity, for example, campaign for all women and girls, not just for some women and girls. So it's important that we think about how we approach feminism and women's rights in an intersectional way. Think about, you know, BME women, disabled women and so on. So we, we can't just have a very closed, one-size-fits-all approach. And that has to feed through the whole organisation. Liz? Uh, it's a really practical one for us. We employ, you know, thousands of drivers and engineers. There is a pan-European shortage of drivers and engineers. If we're only attracting half the population, that's a real business issue for us. So actually attracting women into those roles is an imperative. And how have you managed to do that? Firstly, listen to the ones that we've got. And we've learned an awful lot from that about what the conditions are like to be a, to be a female driver. Um, you know, some real basics like the loos weren't clean and, uh, um, you know, we don't, we don't allow breaks at the right places. Uh, so some really practical things. Um, so we've listened to them and... And based on the back of that, we've changed some, some terms and conditions, but we've also changed the way that we advertise those roles as well. They're, at the end of the day, they're customer service roles, and we're really playing to that attribute of the role, which really appeals to women. Jane, how do businesses use gender or use diversity to benefit the bottom line? Well, there's just evidence that if you have a more diverse board, it does improve the bottom line. And if you can sell that to people, there's also no evidence to suggest that having women on the board or having women employees actually worsens performance. So perhaps we just need to flip the question. (laughs) (laughs) I think, can I just also add, though, that sometimes the, the thing that I find 
repetitive and, and slightly irritating about these conversations, I'm not accusing anyone here about this, <laughs> is that we always have to justify our place. Mm. <laughs> no man is ever asked to justify his place. Why, sh- why should we have 90%, 70% men justify why you're performing so well that you deserve to be there? Would Nobody like asked that question. Would you like to have that conversation, I'd like, Sam? <laughs> I'd like us to flip that over and say, let's stop justifying women and let's ask those men to justify themselves. Or maybe we should have 90% of CEOs in FTSE 100 companies as women. Well, let's try it out. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be maybe, nice? I think we'd have a very different world. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because we're talking about FTSE 100 companies or FTSE 350s. And of course, the difference between them is that they are quoted and they have shareholders, external shareholders who effectively own the businesses. And it's pressure from those external shareholders that is forcing companies to change because Helena Morrissey is head of personal investing at LGIM. LGIM is one of the biggest fund management groups in the world, looking after over a trillion pounds. It is also publicly committed to voting against the reappointment of any chairman who presides over a board with less than 25% women. And LGIM has voted against some titans of British businesses, including Barclays. Well, there's been a lot of talk for many years, of course, about the importance from a point of view of decision-making of having diverse thinking, including women as well as men on boards. And a lot of companies that, however, have been very slow to actually do anything about that. And Elgin decided that actually the time for talk was over and the time for promises was over and that instead we needed to start using our votes. Our votes are on the behalf of the underlying shareholders, those who trust us with their money. And we need to make sure for the sake of their returns that actually we were using whatever power we had, including the votes. So we start with engaging with this chairman and saying, well, what are you doing about this lack of diversity? And then after a certain time, we said, OK, enough's enough. So last year, 2018, we voted against over 100 chairs of FTSE and FTSE 250 companies for not doing enough about diversity on their boards. Sam? I think Helena Morris is running out of patience and we agree with her. It's time for quotas. Quotas! <laughs> Jane? Um, well, I'm not personally keen on quotas because there's, because there's always this element that you're the token woman and as soon as that token woman makes a mistake then they say oh well they can't do it and that may be for all kinds of reasons but having said that we've waited so long when we're now celebrating the 100th anniversary of the first female accountant member of ICAW and we're still not at 50% of the profession being female so maybe we've got to take a more radical stand. Radical, Liz. Are you feeling radical? Because you, because you were not, you know, you were not keen on this at the start of your career. You've been on a bit of a, a, a sort of feminism have, journey, haven't I've, you? I have been on a journny, and I think the reason is that the stat, you, you were a denier. I was a denier, and the stat that shocked me was less than ten percent of executive committees of, of senior executives in companies in the UK are women. It's the same stat in the states. It's actually the same stat if you look at the NHS, public and private. So, so just just big companies. Yeah, well, any numbers that are publishable. That stat is is below 10%. And those are the people who are actually running companies today. Boards are important, but those are the people who are running companies today. And until we start to move that, it hasn't moved for five years now in the UK, until we start to move that number, I think, unfortunately, we'll have that structural issue. Quotas? um, I think the word's emotive. If you call it a target, I'll take it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a quota, we have a target, and Jane's sort of wavering. (laughs) I'd prefer targets, yes. But I would also caution that if a company... um, sets a target and then doesn't meet it, they have to explain it. Publishable targets. 
Absolutely. And that's, I think a lot of companies are already there with that kind of approach. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, we are going to still be here having this conversation. Let's all let's put a date in our diaries in five years time. And, and we probably won't have seen much change unless we have an intervention. Time limited use of quotas has been proven to work in the world of politics. Look at all women's shortlists. We've got 47% of Labour MPs that are women, 20% of Conservative MPs are women. What's the difference? One uses a quota and one doesn't. You know, there is a problem here. And we have conscious and unconscious bias going on. We have structural barriers to women, a power structure dominated by men, you've got to leapfrog all of that and change it and be in there to change it. And that's, I think, if we did that, we'd get somewhere. Okay, I'm going to give you all a conundrum. So you've got advertising for two jobs, okay? And you've got two great candidates, once a man, once a woman. The man says he wants 90 grand, the woman says he wants 40 grand. What do you do? I'm going to ask Liz because she's the practical one here. (laughs) Uh, So I'd have worked out what the job's worth and I'd pay them the rate for the job. I'd pay them both the rate for the job. Even if the woman says, oh, my last job was earning 40 grand and the bloke goes, oh, my my last grow, I was, you know, I I want 90. I think this is one of these radical moves where we need to start paying people the rate for the job. So I'd pay them both. Paying people the rate for the job, not what they demand. Because that's not how it works. I would say... um there is evidence that you shouldn't ask people what their current salary is because if you're a woman, you're already paid less and you say you increase it by 10%, they're still going to be earning less than the man. So we've got to work out what is the right rate for the right job. So work out the rate and that's what you pay irrespective of what the candidate says. Exactly. At my end of the voluntary sector, I don't get those kind of salary not. <laughs> <laughs> it was just something I read what I thought was quite an interesting conundrum. Go yeah, on. Absolutely. Transparency about the rates being offered for the job. Absolutely. You know, work out what is, is genuinely on offer for the job and don't import pay inequality in at the start really don't do that look at what you're doing you're responsible as the employer it's not their responsibility it's down to you a lot of managers though will say I will get away with paying the people the least they will accept because then I've got money in my budget to do other things I mean that is how I mean let's talk the real world that's how it works but that is also, if it leads to pay discrimination, leaving you open to a legal challenge. Yeah, but nobody ever takes anybody, or very rarely do women take companies to pay discrimination. They just leave. Uh, so I agree with that point. I don't agree with In the real world, this is happening now. We do rate for the job. We do a lot of research now about what the right rate for the right job is. And, and I've got proven examples where we've done exactly that. You think that. the world is changing? I think that aspect of the world is changing. Yes. <laughs> it's not a thoroughly positive endorsement there, was it, Liz? <laughs> there are more cases of women challenging it. you know. And so I, I would really push back on that. And I think one of the things we want to see is a modernised legislative framework. We're working on that for next year for the 50th anniversary. And I think we'll strengthen the woman's hand if we achieve that. And that will change the game a bit. I think we've got to destigmatise it, though. There is still a stigma a- attached to taking something to tribunal. Of course, against, and we're trying to prevent that. Employer. We're trying yeah. to prevent yeah. that. But we've got to get equal pay yeah let's go back to the title of this podcast then is inequality in the workplace inevitable and i want you all to answer it will there always be a gender pay gap no it's not inevitable it will change um it's going to take time but i think that tipping point is coming i think there is a generational shift in what men want out of careers as well and i think that generational shift will help a lot we're not yet at the tipping point though no not yet jane It's not inevitable. I think a lot of people assume it's inevitable and we've got to fight against that. I think it's not inevitable, but the slow pace of change is inevitable unless we fast forward it. And so that means we need interventions to make that happen. Legal. Legal challenges, you know, really recognising where the barriers and the problems are. And, you know, this, this slow process that we've been going through for the last 50 or so years has got to be speeded up. My thanks go to a great panel, Liz Benison from Arriva, Sam Smethers from the Fawcett Society and Dr Jane Burney from the ICAW.
You've been listening to More Than a Number with me, Louise Cooper, a podcast brought to you by ICAEW, the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. For those of you that don't know, chartered accountants are highly trained, critical thinkers who apply their knowledge to get behind the numbers and further their understanding to build stronger world economies. So make sure you subscribe to More Than a Number so you never miss an episode. Tune in next time when we're looking at how we could profit from the planet to the tune of $12 trillion.